Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Zhizhong, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing Tar and Los Spookies, a film and a TV series about what's hiding beneath the surface of a performance. Wow. <laughs> Question mark. We're so smart. So this week we ended up watching a film together in the cinema, which we have never done before in all of our years of friendship. Isn't that nuts? Oh, wow. I guess we never have. That's kind of weird. Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> I mean, for what it's worth, like, finally, finally, now, in the year of our Lord 2022, we are able to actually hang out in person. And it was a delight. <laughs> and I'd forgotten how tall you are. I'd fully oh, forgotten tall. how tall you are. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to me, come on now. Uh, what, yeah, fair, what's your fair. height? Uh, five seven, I guess. Yeah, that's tall, babe. I guess that's like slightly above average for yeah, women's yeah. Women. And I'm and I'm five one. So there you have it. In case you just need like a sort of visual reference, any, yes. Anyone listening to this? Yes, I do understand that I am shorter than most people think I am because I guess I have tall energy in my voice, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, I think um, you do get that sort of reaction a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'm a Middle Eastern woman. We are generally like spiritually very tall women. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, not uh, not physically. Um, but it was fun. It was fun to be at the Alamo Draft House in the old BK. You mm. trekked it down um, yeah. and I trekked it up and it, it was a beautiful time. Yeah, uh, speaking of <laughs> what we watched, together what did you watch this week Belen? so with you i watched tar in the movie theaters which is i believe the only way that it's available right now um i think so yes yeah and i think it's only available in new york and la Oh um, really? Damn. I right. think so, which which is kind of batshit, but um it will be available in in more countries and and more ways, I believe, like as time goes on. I think it's just right now this is the situation. Um so Tar is Kate Blanchett being a power lesbian again. Hey, she's joined the canon. Love um her. we love this. Uh please just keep doing this, Kate. For more information, this is a film directed by Todd Field. It's his third film, and it's the f- his last film. His second film was 16 years ago. So Tar tells the story of Lydia Tar, who is played by Kate Blanchett. Lydia Tar is an acclaimed EGOT-winning composer and conductor who claims Leonard Bur- the great Leonard Bernstein as her mentor. So in this film, we meet her a few weeks out from the performance of one of the Mahler symphonies that she hasn't already recorded. So she's recorded, recorded every single other one that, of his symphonies apart from this one. So it's a big deal. She loves Mahler, who is also a composer. In addition to that, she's also publishing her book, her autobiography. Um, it's called Tar on Tar, which is a hilarious name. So... Understandably, in this film, things start going wrong or right, depending on <laughs> depending on how you see it and how you see Lydia in general. We meet Lydia like basically at the peak of her career. There's no rise and fall. It's not a cradle to grave situation. We just meet her when she's at the highest of her high. And um, her success in terms of like what she's been able to do in this world and in the world is palpable. Like it seeps into every corner of the frame of this movie until it doesn't, obviously. And then on every pore of Kate Blanchett, basically, the rooms that she's in, the houses that she owns, the private jets, the clothes. Quick aside for the clothes, this is some of the best clothing on a on a person that we've seen. I think halfway through the movie I turned to you and I was like, I need her wardrobe. Like <laughs> 
it's insane. So it's all just cashmeres and wools and silks and oh, just right up my alley. Anyway, so we meet her at this point because this film is about her downfall. I mean, I don't think that's a spoiler. I think it's kind of under... Do you think that's a spoiler? I think that's fair, right? Yeah, I think you can say that very simply. Yeah, and what did you think of this film, Jenny? I already know what you think, but just for our listeners out there, what were your thoughts coming out of this? What are your thoughts a couple of days now that it's been percolating in you? I like the film. I think it is an ambitious work. Uh, I like Kate Blanchett in almost everything, I think. I like also, or at least what is still sort of capturing my attention, my thoughts right now is uh, the film's sort of ambiguity, which mm-hmm. I think is its strength. And yes. um, the fact that, you know, despite the arc that we see play out, which is something that probably once you see it happening, you can predict where it'll go. It still managed to surprise me at the end. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting movie. No, totally. And I think what's the most interesting about it is that it starts off... You know, this is a long film. It's two hours and 40-something minutes. Uh, so it's almost three hours. Um, and I warned you going in because I know how much you dislike long films, but <laughs> it it doesn't feel long. Mm-hmm. And a part of that is because it does a really good job of like just introducing us to this world and obviously introducing Lydia. She is a, an extremely fictional character, but she's in a non-fiction world, like in terms of like the world that we see her in is feels very real, like... I think it starts off with her at the New Yorker Festival with, with Adam Gopnik, who is like the real life New Yorker editor, um, just interviewing her, telling us about her life. Um, and then it kind of goes from there, you know, like the world itself, the symphonies, the rooms that she's talking about, all of these actually exist, which, you know, makes the spectacle of how she's placed in that world really hilarious. There's some kind of like tongue in cheek satire going on here that's very gentle but very, very like playfully cynical. It's just very effective. I don't know. Like there were, part, like, I think in our screening, there were people that were clearly like music heads that were like laughing at all the little music in jokes. But the parts about like the way that she was talking, like these, in- you know, quote unquote, like high art intellectual conversation just felt so dumb because they are like, I've heard some of those conversations in real life and I know people that have to talk like that. And it's just, there was something very exacting about it that I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, From the tone of the voice to, yeah, yeah, basically the cadence of how they talk and, and what they say in these, these panels and interviews, it, it really struck that note of authenticity. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I, I will say, I think part of the ambiguity is you, you can't tell if Field hates or loves Lydia and I think that that really works because it makes it tough for us as the audience to truly root for her completely or to, you know, or to truly celebrate her slowing kind of sinkhole descent, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is this is a film, the, re- the reason why I love it so much, like this is one of the best films that I've seen this year. And the reason why is because it's my favorite category of film, which is the one that really firmly tries to hold two truths in both hands at the same time and like forces us to confront that it's a very intelligent thing to do as a writer or a filmmaker and it's really fucking hard to pull off and the fact that i think this has been pulled off is you know astounding like there's just something truly um impressive about the whole thing yeah Um, and i think at this point maybe again it won't be a huge spoiler to say that the quote-unquote downfall mm -hmm. it is the kind of downfall that you'd expect these days like the kind of thing 
especially in the shadow of Me Too and basically, you know, victims of powerful people uh, alleging their mistreatment or abuse at the hands of of these sort of titans in the various industries they're in. Uh, that's the kind of downfall that we're talking. Um, yeah. So whatever you feel about it, like everything about this period and quote unquote cancel culture or everything that have to do with that discourse and, and p- this particular moment of time, that that is something that the film is steeped in. Totally. And it's funny because I, I, you know, I read a lot of reviews that forcefully are like, you know, you might on the face value think that this is a film about like quote unquote cancel culture, but it really isn't. And I totally agree with that because it is just the surface level chat about it. It's not like you can't just stop there. It's, it's, you don't even need to start there even. You don't even need to talk about it. There's just something beyond, um, like this film is trying to go beyond that. So speaking of the downfall, how did you feel about it? Cause that was like the thing that we first were, when we came out of the screening, that's the thing that we initially were reacting against, or not even against, just that was a thing that was like feeling very visceral to us at the moment. How did you feel about the way that Fields kind of did that? I think the the sort of progression of it was smart because it you see the trickle and then um, mm-hmm. the wave, and, and that's often yeah. how it goes. Like it becomes like an avalanche, and yeah. then I think. Uh, at the end, what I was so surprised by is like sort of where the film goes with that. Like we mm-hmm, see, we've mm-hmm. seen like other depictions um, of these kind of things, or we hear these narratives, and it's like, okay, this figure who you know allegedly did these things, these bad things, you know, the story ends right there. We don't really hear from them ever again. And then here, it actually takes us beyond that. Like we don't, yeah, we as in maybe the the public in this world don't hear from her again because where did she go? Like what yeah. happened to Lydia Tarr? And this yeah. film actually does attempt to to show some some bit of that, which I I was surprised by just because it wasn't anything particularly shocking. I just wasn't expecting that. And I wasn't yeah. expecting it to stick with her in the aftermath as long as it did and to see where, yeah. where she went and what she was doing. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how this is shot because I think it deeply relates to how we are on this journey with Lydia in general. Like, did you notice how Fields limits what we see? with her like especially with regards to the downfall especially with regards to just staying in her world i think one of the critiques has been that we don't really get to see the other side of whatever lydia is going through like in terms of the perspective of the people around her but well i think that's a strength right it's totally a strength because we are limited by fields to just we are along with her we are together sticking our heads in the sand she is sticking her head in the sand the entire fucking film and it's because of her hubris that she refuses to take it out whether it's her hubris or her fear we can't tell but she refuses to take it out until she obviously has to and i think there's there's power in that because it's really putting us in the perspective of why she is the way she is you know and that's very important like you might not agree with it it's just fascinating to just be there and like essentially being forced into a seat by fields and like forced to put a seatbelt on and just stay in the fucking car with her you know um yeah i i think it's good that we don't well good is like a you know a a filmmaking decision that we don't see anything of the behavior the alleged sort of inappropriate or Mm -hmm. um abuse of power 
that happened. We don't see what took place. We don't exactly know even what took place. There are suggestions, yeah. but they never yeah. show that to us. We don't see the like the victims, their sides necessarily. Like it is squarely with Lydia and like the people in her orbit. And yeah, I think it's it's good because it's making us question as viewers, like you could say one side of the spectrum. One type of viewer might question, like, well, did that stuff even happen? Like, right. prove any even happen? And basically people just, like, putting a pack of lies against her. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think for, for viewers who, there are the other viewers, and I think probably we fall on that side. Um, yeah. Who, yeah. you're like, you watch this, and you see the whispers, and you see what's going on, and you're like, okay, they're not showing any of this explicitly, or even, like, referencing it explicitly, but... We know what happened. Like, oh, we, yeah. we can be pretty sure what happened. And our premise is that, like, yeah, whatever was alleged to have happened, uh, yeah, it, it most likely did happen. Yeah, it definitely happened. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing that, you know, when accusations about people that you love or people that you are fans of or have idolized or whatever, when they start coming out, and I feel like the earliest memory of that is obviously Michael Jackson for us because we were so young when those accurate accusations started coming out but there's a, there's like a creeping feeling of like dread and that dread happens so much in this film and it's just with someone that you know we love Kate Blanchett there's like an allure to her and she definitely like performs that through Lydia Tarr and you can tell undeniably that she's a genius like she is everything that they say that she is which is a one-in-a-lifetime composer a one-in-a-lifetime conductor like and at the same time yeah like the whispers are also probably true and that just that that holding that is it's a very funny feeling it's really weird yeah and i think this film does a really good job of of making you confront that um through this character and making you you feel that discomfort that that tension and the dread like you said and and also like fighting or being conscious of and maybe even fighting the the impulse on our part to want to say like you know these things yeah didn't happen like it's it's they're t- they're totally like making it up like Lydia Tar is the unfair scapegoat of whatever this moment in time is then it's like a a real conscious effort to be like catch yourself and be like okay actually what what am I rooting for here at yeah, this moment exactly yeah and th- th- her brashness is also kind of attractive too i think for a lot of people like there's a conversation that she has with a younger student at juilliard and that conversation you know there were parts of it that i agreed with her you know like just straight up th- th- and then obviously parts of it where i didn't but you know you could tell that that was designed for the people that are like who gives a fuck you know who who cares like it doesn't matter separate the art from the artist like who gives a shit but ultimately like that makes you root for her because you think that she's at a level of intelligence and then throughout the film you find out that actually she isn't she's just as human as any fucking dickhead even though she's a genius and a lot of that has to do with the camera work i think we you know we spend a lot of time with her alone um with nobody you know like where she is running where she is sleeping like she's sleeping with someone half the time but she's awake and a lot of the emotions that you see from her like she's anxious she's kind of bewildered she's sleepless confused scared because she's hearing these noises she seems really vulnerable um half the time when she's alone and this obviously makes us feel empathetic towards her especially when she you know when she's with her daughter as well petra 
who is adorable. She's clearly like, you know, a quote unquote loving, like, I'm going to say father because she says she calls that she's, herself, yeah. she calls herself the father of, of their kid. Um, and this obviously, you know, like we see the parts of her that we kind of see in ourselves as well. Just she might be godlike to everybody, but at the end of the day, she's deeply, deeply human. But the difference is obviously in terms of the way that Field wrote this and directed this, you know, when we see Lydia with other people, with other adults, that's when we get to see the fucking dickhead. Like, that's when we get to see the ugly side of her and, like, what that does to her. You know, whether it's with her assistant Francesca, who's played by Naomi Melant, who you will know from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, and then also her wife Sharon, played by Nina Hoss. And, you know, like, this ghost-like character of Krista, they all kind of come together to tell us what Fields is unflinchingly trying to remind us of, which is that she's just remarkably terrible at the same time, you know? And I, I think the thing that I realized that he was doing after the fact was the way that he was showing us, like the camera was fixed on the person that she was talking to instead mm -hmm. of ever cutting to her when she was talking so when she i guess this is somewhat of a spoiler but she delivers some disappointing news for her assistant francesca and while she's delivering it the camera is just on francesca and it's just you know it's a close-up it's her face and you get to see her disappointment to this woman's words and then also when she's delivering disappointing news to her orchestra it's on the orchestra mm -hmm. like it's and it's it's such a great device to just show us that how her words and her arrogance and her like meanness and her selfishness at the same time just ha has an effect on the people around her and like how she kind of doesn't care you know and it's just it, it says something about her hubris and her arrogance in a way that i really really liked yeah and even beyond adults when you see her interacting with the the child at her daughter's school the little little child bully um yeah it's basically yeah. like a a foreshadow and and like a very explicit sort of view of what Lydia can be like, which is obviously um, at the moment in the theater, I think a lot of people were cheering this on and like, you know, myself included. I was like, hell yeah, yeah. Like, show that yeah. little that little asshole, you know, not to mess with your daughter. Although like objectively, yeah, it is kind of a terrible thing to, to, to threaten a, what are they, like nine-year-old or something yeah. to tell yeah. her like, no one will ever believe you if you tell them I'm... I'm threatening yeah. you. Yeah, because um, I'm an adult. Yeah. 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 And yeah. then this yeah. is kind of a, a clue for, for what's to come and how she deals with people who get in her way or are not pleasing her or potentially like threatening the the sanctity of like her and her loved one's lives. Like she, she gets through by, by brute force, by brute sort yeah. of threats um, and yeah. this sort of underhandedness that we see throughout the film. Yeah. I mean, the only time that we really get to see her confronted is with her wife, when her wife literally, you know, says to her, every relationship you've ever, you ever had is transactional, apart from the one with your daughter, I think is kind of what, where she landed on. And that's the only time we really get to hear Lydia being told exactly who she is, you know, and then also, I, I think with her brother at the end, too. These are the people that are closest to her that know her the best. And it's just it's it's fascinating to see it i really liked how we see her with the character of olga who's like the new mm -hmm. cellist in her orchestra because you can see that knowing what we know about her is that she is now in a, in a very predatory state with olga in terms of 
she sees what she likes. Uh, she she knows that this is something that she could probably do or pull off because of the power that she has. And then she's faced with someone who doesn't respond and is actually she's actually the the more dominant one in that interaction and she kind of doesn't know what to do with herself and she seems really bewildered and pathetic it's yeah just, you it's really so see sad the, to watch you really see the sort of patheticness come out especially like when they're on their trip to new york whatever power dynamic that lydia tar had had led herself to believe was was taking place very clearly it's shown like no you are the older sort of predatory like lecher sort of with this young woman who clearly doesn't really give a shit about you and is yeah. like blowing you off so she can actually go out and have fun with other presumably young people yeah and and the the sort of clear focus of it is sort of like a again like a, a strange relationship that tar thought she had the upper hand on but actually it's like you're revealing yourself to be a, a deeply pathetic woman in this case. And like that trip to New York, her currency is now very weak. Yeah. So it's even more like the dynamic, the power dynamics have shifted and she doesn't even quite realize it yet. Exactly. And Olga has realized it. You know, she, Olga does what she needs to do to get what she needs from her, like knowingly or unbeknowingly to herself, even earlier on in the film but then like it gets to the point when she can't get anything from Lydia that actually matters so then she is not engaging anymore and it's just it's a it's a really interesting their their little dynamic was was I think the, the more interesting one I want to talk a little bit about sound design before we uh, move into like the critical feedback end of it but how did you feel about it because it, 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 it's a film about music it's a film about an orchestra it's a film about a symphony it had to kind of come in heavy and strong, right? How did you feel about it? How did it make you feel? I mean, it had the full range of everything from the near silences to just the, the thundering sort of uh, sound of the orchestra. And I remember the first time like we we hear the orchestra really like uh, spring to life in such a loud and bold and just like incredibly present way like that it was almost like a jump scare because yeah the volume just like comes out of nowhere and it's so powerful yeah um yeah and then because the it other, cuts in yeah it cuts in and with with a shot of tar um from underneath and it's just like a really all-encompassing shot and that, that was really impressive and then the other other hand of course mm -hmm. you get all these like quiet things that maybe you can barely hear or um yeah and those are really key to to this movie too i as someone that i'm not an insomniac but i'm a very very light sleeper i wake up at the slightest of noises and unfortunately i'm married to someone that is just a deep sleeper within five seconds of sleeping and usually most of the time i am up in the middle of the night trying to figure out what the fuck that noise is and to see the representation on screen with this um was pretty great in terms of like lydia also very light sleeper very sensitive to sounds and we see her again like getting up in the middle of the night trying to figure out where the noise is coming from and the thing that i loved the most was that half the time you couldn't tell where it was coming from and that's so fucking hard to do that's so hard there's a point where she is even not when it's quiet like when she's running and she hears screams coming from somewhere and we can't tell where it's coming from and neither can she. Yeah, and it, I like would, it was from, so cool. From everywhere and also nowhere at the same time. Exactly. And it was just really well done. And obviously, I think um, it helped to have the score, which is composed by Hilda Guanadotu, who did, uh, she won the Oscar for Joker. And she also did Chernobyl, if you ever watched Chernobyl. 
Guanadotto is like just in general really good at haunting sounds. Um, and this this was done really well. I heard, I heard that Todd Fields and his editor did all the foley them themselves, like in Scotland somewhere, which is like really cool. Um, again, you have to do this. Like this is this is a film about music. You have to go all in on the sound. Um, which I really appreciated. I had a fantastic time. However, obviously, there are some critics that didn't like it, and we will get into this a little bit later. Um, but Richard Brody to my principal's office right now. You're in big trouble, bruv. Um, he, his review, he did not like it. You read it, right? You read it this morning? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about it? Well, I think he does... Well, he, he calls it a regressive work in both its aesthetic as well as its the ideas and the themes that it's, I guess, exploring. And and by that, I mean, like, if in his interpretation... Like the film is unambiguously taking aim at cancel culture again, quote unquote cancel culture. Uh, and I think he, he's doing this thing where I think we saw this with like the rehearsal. You know, I love Richard Brody, but his his reviews often his opinions don't quite match up with ours. At least some of the time for some of these films, yeah. And it's almost like a like kind of a straightforward reading of tar like like the the tar's strength is again like in this ambiguity and how it sways you from one end to the other um and and it basically is like trying to show show you how this manipulation can work but his reading almost seems to take the face value and say like yeah well it is trying to manipulate you into thinking this like objectively like that uh lydia tar is a is a hero um and like a victim of cancel culture and and yes that that is that is very bad yeah it's it's very silly i mean for me i i like you said i very often disagree with him but i like reading him because he's great it's just top to bottom i have never disagreed with a review more in my life like it was just hilarious um i highly recommend uh reading other reviews of this film i think fran hopfner uh, wrote something for Gorka that I really liked as well. Um, there's a lot of good writing. I also want to give a shout out to all my Mozart in the Jungle fans. Uh, this is definitely the type of drama that you will love. Before we go, um, what star sign do you think Lydia Tar is? <laughs> oh, dude, don't ask me this question. You know I don't know <laughs> shit about. <laughs> well, the thing is, astrology. The thing is, uh, don't say that. Don't say astrology like that. I heard the scorn in your voice. No, it's fine. I think. I think basically, when we see her Wikipedia page in it, it does tell us what her birthday is, but I forgot what it is. And I think it said something about Libra, but I disagree. I'll just say it for the record. I think she's a Leo Sun oh with a Scorpio Moon and a Capricorn Rising. Okay, this tells me nothing. I. I. I don't know. <laughs> what any of those suggest but all right you you can have that last word thank you so what did you watch this week jenny so this week for a sort of short and sweet one uh i'm gonna be talking about los spookies which is on hbo season two specifically uh came out recently so this is a comedy series created by Julio Torres, Ana Fabrega, and Fred Armisen, all of whom also play characters in the show. And the first season came out in 2019, uh, and now finally the second season is out with five episodes released as of now. So I think there will be one more episode coming out uh, later this week by the time you hear this. 
So the show stars Torres, Fabrega, Bernardo Velasco, and Cassandra Ciangarotti as a group of friends who form a crew called Los Spookies. Uh, and basically, they get hired to put on acts of horror to serve their client's purpose. Uh, and often the, the job is, the purpose of the job is something kind of silly, like create a monster and then get my students to fall in love with the monster and then kill the monster to show the students, like, they need to listen to me as a teacher. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so something like that. And it takes place in kind of like an alternative unnamed latin american country uh, so the show is taking place primarily in spanish and there are also some characters who speak english um but it's very surreal and sort of absurdist and a lot of magical realism as well and critics and viewers have noted how this shares similarities in tone with uh sort of the magical realism of especially some latin american fiction telenovelas Although apparently the creators were not consciously trying to do this. Um, they just wanted to do something they said that where there are no rules. And so anything can happen and nobody sort of blinks an eye at whatever oddity or, or strange thing is taking place. Yeah. 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 So it's a it's a very particular kind of humor, I think. One that maybe you'll either love or hate. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Pelin? Do you love this or, or are you not super into this particular tone, this humor, the genre yet. I love that it exists. Um, (laughs) That's a very nice way of putting it. Look at me being Switzerland. Um, No, I do love it. I do love it. Um, It's funny because I think when I first started watching it, because I did watch season one when it came out, um, it reminded me so much, and it still to this day reminds me of The Mighty Boosh, which if you are British, you will know this is Noel Fielding. Um, and oh. very, very surreal. Obviously, there are some problematic moments in this because it's the UK and it's Europe and it's of a time. It, it just reminds me of that. And it, it's because there is, like nothing makes sense. Like It's just it's funny in a way that if you were zooted out of your fucking mind would be hilarious. Uh, but for me, like, I recognize the surrealism and I don't usually laugh. Um, I'm just like, to me, it's like, it's nice that you can just be absurdist and people can give you money for being absurdist. I think it's very important for that to exist in the comedy landscape and the world in general. So that's how I feel about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I agree that it's really nice that this exists um (laughs) i mean i do like the show i think it it took me a a few episodes you know back in season one to get into it but now i i do really like it i'm very i feel a certain kind of fondness for this which is Mm -hmm. strange to say but it's sort of smaller show that i think doesn't get as much shine in sort of like among the hbo stable of of goods Um, no i do i do feel very overprotective of it i will say Yeah. yeah Um, yeah. I like the creators. I'm fans of their now, fans of them now. I think, especially because of the show, it's it's refreshing to have something like this. And I think also part of what I find refreshing, in a sense, is that there are certain things about this show that, in in marketing, in um, you know, critical reception and analysis, whatever, that could be sort of blown up to made into like capital I like issues or like sort of marketable. Mm characteristics of the show like you could point to uh its representation in terms of you know the latin world latin america world Uh, you could point to its queerness most of the protagonists are queer and there's a very sort of like queer sensibility to it 
yeah. you could point to how it has some sort of commentary on like American imperialism. Um, yeah. But I think the way that I like to enjoy the show is the way that I think the showrunners want us to enjoy it, which I've read some interviews with them. Like I'll, I'll link uh, one or two of them in our Substack. but it seems clear from the interviews that there, there wasn't really some broader aim in a sense, like nothing to really make it a statement about or yeah. uh, to, you know, dedicate to as the show to as like an issue that they want to advocate for. They really just wanted to make a show that they find funny and enjoyable where yeah. things happen, whatever can happen. And so that's how I like to engage with the show, I think, just to find it fun and enjoyable where things happen. And I'm, I, yeah. I accept them and I'm like, I like that. It's very freeing. It feels re- like it feels like a huge relief. Yeah. Um, that you really can't predict what's going to happen you can't predict what anyone's going to say at any time um it it's just there's there's nothing about it that like it's just a constant zigzagging that's going on and i just i appreciate that it doesn't feel confusing to me or anything it just feels like a sweet relief (laughs) like especially in the tv landscape right now so yeah and like the randomness is not like it's not like like when we think of the word random like i think a lot of our minds maybe we'll go back to the early aughts like what we thought of as random the millennial random thing like yeah <laughs> like dinosaurs and, and like mustaches and people going like raw all the time it's yeah. not <laughs> it's not that kind of random it's like things sort of make sense within the logic of the show which is it's hard to describe because there is not really a prescribed logic but things happen and they're not so it's just accepted yeah it's not so out of the blue that i'm like uh what the fuck it's just like yeah let's that let's go with that sort of thing and i really like the characters as well like it's one of those things where it's a group of a group of friends and you know again like that sort of fondness and affection for these protagonists so do you have any favorite characters uh or or performers uh among these this cast it's so hard it's so hard i'm like cleanly split between um tati and ronaldo i think Mm. i just love them both so much i also do i do really love andres um i think he is so funny like he's the fight he is objectively i think the funniest out of the three of them um i'm just very tati is so endearing and kind of like just And everybody knows that about her too, which is really nice that you feel like a solidarity with everybody else that everyone agrees that Tati is just endearing. Um, and Ronaldo obviously is just, he's such a pure person. He's and a sweetheart. Yeah, he's such a sweetheart and he's just trying his best. And I really like the arc that's going on with him with the second season right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. How about you? Who are your faves? I think my... Number one fave, I, I think I'd have to say is Tati. She, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and Tati is played by Anna Fabrega. And, you know, she adds such a, a lightness to the show, um, uh, because she is supposed to be the, the comic relief, I guess, if you're thinking about this in sort of a traditional, you know, TV story sense. Like, beyond just being sort of the, she's, to put it like plainly, she's the, the stupidest character, um, yeah. by far. But yes. they don't like, um, condescend to her i think in a way like like the show is not condescending to her in the way that comic relief characters are treated and of course like Mm -hmm. you know anna fabrega is is presumably writing her she's she's one of the showrunners she has like control over what happens with tati but it's like very refreshing to see a character that is 
so dim-witted, but so loved and also can behave with such like arrogance as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's just very funny. I find her one of the funniest parts of the show. Um, yeah. I love yeah. Andres as well, played by Julio Torres. Like, just like how much of a brat he is, I think is. I love, amazing. I see so much of myself in him. I'm not <laughs> gonna lie. Um, like just the way he's, he's like, I need luxury at all times. What the fuck do you mean? Yeah. Or I, I can't live like this. I love him. I love him. Very he wonderful. is, he is my capitalist king. Um, yeah. no, and, and I, I think the main thing is Ursula, right? Yeah. Because she is ostensibly like, the, the most man, normal kind of, yeah. yeah she she's the one that we um will identify the most with because her the way that she kind of navigates this world is like a little bit more aligned to the way that we navigate the world in this world right now um how do you feel about her especially with this second season arc i'm i'm a little bit nervous about this election uh <laughs> arc but i'll see where they take it so yeah she's like a, a, it's always hard to play like a, a sort of straight man role I think in the yeah. way they've, they've done it with her here is like highlighting her competence, I think. Um, but also she still has a personality, you know, like she is cynical. She is very, um, for all her practicality, she's also really, I don't want to say chill. That's like, like she, she sort yeah. of accepts life as it is. Yeah. And yeah. also wants to just like make, make sure that she and her her friends and her loved ones can make it through um whether yeah. that's like by making andres like learn how to be a, a normal adult who can who can get through yeah. or making sure tati yeah. isn't looped into some other scam or whatever but i think uh she she's a good character and she I, is yeah yeah she i i really like how she is also annoying in her own way like she kind of reminds me of michael bluth in um arrested development she's like Again, yeah. like the, the guy that's playing it the straightest in a in a bunch of just like, ma- like a manic situation. Yeah, yeah but um, he, you know, he was also just like she is, kind of a killjoy. killjoy exactly. In a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But also like very cool. Like she is like yes. unbelievably cool. Yes. Yes. So no, yeah. I I really enjoy it. I I'll also give a shout out to Greta uh, Teitelman as the U.S. ambassador, Melanie Ooh, Gibbons. Yeah. Like just their their entire um sort of conception of of american power as this like pink barbie doll uh ruthlessness i think is very funny yeah it's a very good casting i really appreciate that one too yeah yeah and in general just like how most people in the show uh, are just like greedy or stupid or gullible or all the above and that's just again like just an accepted sort of fact and how they how they roll with it uh that's how humans are. And yeah. I, I don't know, that's like, that's probably the most profound thing that they're saying in this whole thing. In Maybe terms stripping of, it of down what it to means. just that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, re- I really like this show. I think like when you first asked me about it, whether I liked it or not, I mean, I do because it is so important to me that mm-hmm. this exists. Like I said, yeah. I'm overprotective of it. Like I was thinking about it and just, you know, the amount of like absurdist shit that we've watched over the years growing up there's been so much of it there's been like a continual stream of like absurdist stuff and like right now i don't know if there is anything apart from this and i saw a tweet the other day about like the way that because i'm not on tiktok you are the way that like tiktok comedy and videos are being made right now by like the younger generation and how they do fall into like an absurdist like edit a lot of them do yeah yeah and it's just really fun to see obviously like a production version of this like a produced tv show like Mm -hmm. using those same sensibilities 
yeah man keep absurdism keep surreal surreal art alive always like it's just it doesn't have to make sense but i think it's important for it to exist so this week in culture to loop back to richard brody kind of a strange week or a couple weeks for brody i think um and anyone who is a fan of his or knows of his existence (laughs) which is uh primarily media twitter slash uh film twitter that's sort of very specific intersection yes um so richard brody new yorker critic of course he has had a long and storied career he has been having some interesting opinions i think lately people have started to pick up on the fact that for a lot of the the sort of buzzy major releases in in like tv or film in the past few months his opinion has kind of been what an outlier in a lot of cases among professional like critic opinion for certain works for example the rehearsal you know he hated it don't worry darling he loved it um uh, <laughs> i think he <laughs> let's see tar for example he hates it uh amsterdam he loves it so he is going against the grain for a lot of sort of buzzy releases lately in in a way that people are taking notice of so i think this is a thing people have been like joking about or talking about in the group chats for a while but it sort of finally spilled over into the open because i'll say like at, at at my workplace at gawker um one of our writers wrote like a blog post i think titled like is richard brody okay and it was basically pointing out this stuff and saying like he shares a lot of like wrong opinions lately and of course like uh, there's no such thing as like necessarily right or wrong opinions in film criticism but it 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 was like a sort of an interesting pattern that people have been noticing lately and it sort of blew up i guess in a pretty negative way i didn't have anything to do with behind the scenes of this post so i can't really share much information on that but yeah yeah, what kind of things were you seeing sort of uh, circling this whole topic uh and and subject matter on online palin well um i think a lot of people came to his defense and i think they took the gawker piece a little bit too literally I think they thought that it was more than a blog post or that it was like some kind of character assassination, which is very stupid because if you read the fucking thing, it's obviously just like a playful little blog post. Like it doesn't really matter. And yeah, a lot of people that had worked with Brody or had considered Brody a mentor or agree with Brody even um, just rushed to his defenses, uh, started talking about Olivia Craighead, like the writer and just, you know, (laughs) coming for her. And then it got, it culminated obviously to the point where Richard Brody had to step in and be like, Hey, I'm honored by the feedback that you guys are like the support that I'm getting, but it was an, it was an innocuous piece, which he is correct. It is totally innocuous. And then he ended up saying, you know, like you can kind of get an insight for how people would talk about me if I died. Yeah, uh, or like something, a, or something a, to that effect. Yeah, like having witnessing your own funeral. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it all starts off with obviously like something that you and I have been so exasperated by for so long now, which is just the self seriousness of it all. Like, don't get me wrong, I got riled up when I read the Tar review. I got riled up when I read the rehearsal review. But at the end of the day, like he's being paid to give his opinion. Like mm-hmm. with those reviews, I deeply, deeply disagree with them. But then, like that's it. You know, like. 
just because he's a New Yorker critic does not mean that he gets to eclipse what I think about it. And I think, I think a lot of people get confused because there is an authority that, you know, we've talked about this previously about like the critic and what power do they have? And of, of course they have some power, of course, especially on a place like New Yorker. Yeah. But, um, I, I think ultimately, it's funny to point out it is funny to point out the fact that Richard Brody is going fully against the grain uh, even if there isn't a grain he's just like the way that he's talking about the themes of a film are so different from his peers I mean the 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 beauty of criticism really is that anyone can have any opinion and I think it's just it, I think it's mostly justified in any case I I think we we've stated before in this podcast like Richard Brody, I think, is one of my favorite critics. Um, yep. He is a curmudgeon. I don't agree with him uh, some of the time, sometimes a lot of the time, but I like yeah. how he writes about things mostly. And yeah. I like to see a different opinion. It's yeah, true, I might not agree with, especially some of these latest ones, but, you know, again, that is the beauty of this form of writing and this, like, open sort of forum. Yeah. Um, and then the beauty of that is, again, like, people can write counterpoints and disagree with totally 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 like there's nothing i I i think the main thing that i noticed with the the defense that he got from like a lot of the people that work from with him was that he's like smart and it's like no one's denying that he's smart like of course he's smart the reason why critics have the job that they do is because they are so good at explaining their thoughts and their feelings and emotions when they when they receive something it's not that they're right or wrong it's just they're really good at verbalizing how and they are really good at like bringing in references and historic points and it's just it, it it's i mean i'm ranting now but it's just funny to watch this happening because even richard brody got to the point where he was just like this isn't that serious and that kind of tells you all you need to know and it's still like ultimately that's why we love him because he like he gets it he gets that part of this conversation but yeah dude i don't know what's going on with you you're like deeply wrong about tar (laughs) (laughs) that's your takeaway that's my takeaway That's your ultimate takeaway ultimately Um, you're wrong i'm a taurus i'm a taurus i think i'm right all the fucking time okay okay thank you for explaining that that. one to me yes Um, yes but yeah i think ultimately like how can we expect critics to be able to have the freedom to criticize things if like their fellow you know writers and critics can also criticize them in public yeah i I don't know it's sort of uh i'm not gonna lie it was like a little bit disheartening to me to see this play out in this way um and then of course like people have the freedom to criticize the criticizer of the critic too i i think in in times like these you can really see where the um, affinity or affection for different sorts of people and publications matter like richard brody is obviously a very highly esteemed um well-respected you know member of the film world the film criticism world and and like the journalism world and he works at a very respected esteemed storied institution and then it was for me personally just like a little bit weird to see people shit on a young 20 something like blogger for yeah. Um, not even like her opinion necessarily, but for just like just like noticing a pattern, like yeah, and just like not not being in the same league or world as as Brody is what it's the impression that it seemed to come down to. Like how dare how dare you speak about this like huge like Titan like this huge figure and like who are you to do that? And it's like well, exactly. It's like, well, she's she's a writer. She's another writer just like you. Um, yeah, exactly. 
And, you know, he, his tweet said as much, you know? It's just, like, it really isn't that serious. I guess, like, end of it all, everyone, like, just relax. Unclench relax. a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just, 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 just try to try to have some fun with films and TV in this this brief little moment that we're in before we all die. So. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So um, now that we've all unclenched and we've all calmed down, um, if you are watching anything else that you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just at us or DM us at criticismisdead on Twitter and Instagram. That's all one word, all joined together, nice and tight. Um, for extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, please subscribe to our wonderful newsletter, criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts with a sweet five stars if you can swing it. And tell a friend about us. That's uh, that's our real currency out here. So we will see you next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Lu and Jenny Gijon. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu. 